Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It's always up to speed with Formula One. It is Friday, February tenth. Is it the tenth of February already, uh, Mark? I can't. I can't believe it. It must be because uh, I'm just. Um, I'm. I'm not believing my eyes here. But anyways. Bad way to start off the podcast, but welcome to the show. Welcome to the 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 pre weekend. I guess you could call Friday like a pre weekend. Anyways, we're in a good mood. Hammy's all smiles. I'm slightly less frowny than usual, so <laughs> it's a good vibe here in the studio. But Mark, how's it going, friends? You you look you look a little bit. It looks like you need a little bit of rest this weekend. You know, usually you're nice and perky. I could tell you're 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 playing hurts. It's it's either because I'm getting old and my immune system is not as strong as it once was, or I'm exposed to every illness in my son's school. So he's in a K to <laughs> twelve school, so it's huge. Yeah. But I feel like I'm always sick. And this week I've kind of started. And I think it's a flu that's going around, but I've had a lot of trouble with my th- throat and speaking and lots of coughing. So all that aside, nobody wants to hear that. Uh, but I am excited <laughs> to do the podcast tonight because, as we've been saying, this right? is the off season, my friend. That just keeps on, keeps on giving. But I think there's one important topic, and I felt really bad not mentioning this on the Sunday podcast. So before we get into the good stuff, um, I want to take a moment to reflect or read a uh, tweet from F1 CEO Stefano Domenicali, and he indicated... Turkey has a very special place in the heart of F1 with so many incredible people. The tragedy that has taken place there has shocked us all, and we pray for the victims and the people of Turkey. And of course, by that, he's referring to the massive sequence of earthquakes that struck the region, including Syria, uh, a number of days ago. And I think the latest toll I've seen indicated um, over 20,000 people have lost their lives in those tragedy. But I think it was obviously... uh, it was something I think it was important to bring, not just because Turkey's hosted a race on the Formula One calendar in the past, but again, it's it's one of those things that brings some levity to what we do, which is to have fun and to entertain people. But I think when there's an international tragedy like that, it's worth referring to. And of course, there's all kinds of... Uh, places that are accepting donations to support the people in those regions. But um, obviously our our wishes and our prayers are with the people in, in those countries. Yeah, absolutely. Just never hear want to hear about bad news like that, but that certainly has been a, a shocking and tragic story that's just been going around uh, this week. And like you say, what we do here is it's often a nice distraction from the, the the sometimes harsh realities of life and especially it was a, it was a, a very nice way to kind of get through the darker days of the pandemic but stories like this are, are sobering and just uh, often reminds you like how, how lucky we are and how quickly things can turn tragically in the uh, the, the the blink of an eye all right. Well, why don't we just uh, jump into some of the the, the quick uh, little uh, bits here and there. Remember, uh, we have a partnership with the Race Weekend magazine, uh, raceweekend.com. Head on over there. Use our promo code ScuderiaPod to receive 10% off. Nick DeFries. You know, I always think that Nick is so young. Turning 28 today by no means is he old. Man. But, you know, like for, for a new driver on the grid, that just seems like mid-career professional <laughs> at that age. But Wow. But uh, looking forward to seeing him on the grid uh, full time in just a couple of weeks from now. Boy, this offseason's just flown by. So we got a couple more car reveals to talk about uh, that we've seen over the past couple of days. Coming up uh, this week, Alpha Tauri on the 11th. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then we have uh, McLaren on the 13th. And uh, who else do we have? Then we got Ferrari coming up on the 14th, Mercedes the 15th, and Alpine on the 16th. March 5th, Hammy, less than a month. 
to the first Grand Prix of the weekend. It's barely even three weeks away, just, well, a, a, a tidge more than three weeks away. Preseason in Bahrain getting away in just two weeks from now, Feb 23rd to, to the 25th. 14 days until DTS uh, Season 5 drops, and that's, you know, my weekend's already planned. A nice way to kind of uh, kind of ease out of the, you know, the hangover of, of, a, of a long NFL season in the Super Bowl, so looking forward to that. And MotoGP 101, your your special show is is dropping next week. Really looking forward to that. And then after that, our DTS uh, Season 5 prediction slash review show with uh, with our good friend Seth, uh, Seth of Whiteberg is coming up next week. I can't talk tonight, and I'm drinking coffee, and it just doesn't help. Anyways, and as always, we just wanted to thank you all for all that you guys do to support us. Love all the ratings and reviews we get on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That's the best and easiest way to, to show us a little love and support this uh, the, the, this podcast and uh, help it grow, especially with uh, the new season coming up. I love sharing this uh, wonderful sport with as many people as we can. So, Hammy, we've titled this show, what, what were we going to call this? Honda or McLaren to become Honda's works team or something like this? This is a crazy, crazy story. And, and honestly, after seeing Honda dipping their toes in the sport and out of the sport as either an engine manufacturer or a works team and then both and then neither and then you know all and none of the above i've kind of got some mixed feelings but kind of excitement but a little bit of i don't want to say dread but foreboding <laughs> you know because we kind of been all over the full spectrum with with honda i mean especially if you've been following the sport uh, for for a long long time but why don't you tell us a little bit more of what's what's going on here because apparently only initial contact has been made between honda and mclaren about some something daily i will take i will take initial contact <laughs> i think this is fantastic and maybe maybe i'll set the stage here a little bit so in 2026 as we all know formula one is going to get new engine regulations i'm not going to go into the details because we've talked about it so much but what we do know is in that season mercedes will be powered by mercedes power unit what we don't know is who's going to be powering mclaren aston martin Williams, Ferrari will be powered by a Ferrari power unit. Sauber is going to become the Audi works team and will be powered by an Audi power unit. Haas, unknown at this time. I think we have every expectation that Red Bull and AlphaTauri will both be powered by that fantastic new Red Bull Ford powertrains power unit. Alpine will be rocking a Renault power unit. But the question is, if Honda does decide to come back to Formula One in 2026, and of course, it's signed up to the engine regulations, meaning that it wants to express some interest and it wants to have some influence in informing the actual blueprints of what those engine regulations are going to be. The question is, how is it going to do it? Is it going to do it by buying an existing team and building a works team? Is it that it maybe would build power units and simply be a supplier? Or could there potentially be a more integrated solution? And the race.com reported today that like you said, there's been initial contact between, and again, this is just both parties doing their due diligence, but there's been a conversation between McLaren and Honda. And the expectation, the consideration, the possibility is that that could lead to a full-on works project. And I have been incredibly critical of teams like McLaren and Williams because in the turbo hybrid era, we've never seen a customer team win a championship, not even close. They've barely been able to scrape together wins. And I've argued that McLaren can never contend for championships so long as it is buying its power units from a competitor. It just logically isn't possible, especially when you have to inform the design of your own car based around the packaging of a power unit that's being supplied to you by a third party. So what's exciting about this, of course, is that Honda is turned out to, as it is uh, to be a world-class engine supplier. They've, of course, powered Red Bull to three championships in the last two years, which is a great news story for Red Bull and all of their fans. Uh, obviously, they'd hope to exit the sport. That hasn't happened for reasons that we've covered in the past, but they may be sniffing around an opportunity to pair with McLaren. And the reason, of course, that this is super exciting and juicy and gossipy to talk about is because of the fact because of the fact that they had a recent history together. And my friend, maybe I'll kick it over to you. Mm -hmm. Maybe walk the listeners through what the most, because I think a lot of our listeners are new to the sport, but maybe walk people through what the Ron Dennis McLaren Honda period was like. 
Well, you know that that's going back uh, quite uh, quite some time, right? I mean, first of all, the most recent well, partnership, 2015. yeah, well, twenty fifteen, right? So, I mean, there, but like you say, there's a long history between them. But uh, the most recent uh, uh, partnership between them was twenty fifteen to twenty seventeen, right? And it, it was funny too because. When I kind of look back on that period, I always feel like Honda came in a lot later than the the other manufacturers into this um, in, into this modern V6 turbo hybrid era because that all like switched over in 2014. Mercedes were ready, Ferrari were ready, Renault was was ready at that point. But uh, Honda, they 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 didn't sign on initially when the, when this whole era was being discussed, so they were really late. To the project and i mean they were only a year after everyone else but you know it's they were so much further behind on the curve when it came to developing and and building these engines i mean it really was the like the the worst out of the pack at that point i mean the engine had no power it uh, didn't have any reliability and also, you know, the, McLaren had some issues at that time off the track as well, like uh, on the pit wall. This is before Zach Brown, and this is right at the end of the Ron Dennis era, and and Ron was the the team principal slash, I don't know, emperor of that team for for yeah. decades. <laughs> I mean, it just yep. wasn't like he was around. I mean, he was there from from the glory days, um, you know, f- like over their entire existence, especially through the eighties, the nineties, the early two thousands, and, and whatnot. But when I look at the, the the different eras of McLaren, the ones that really stand out for me was the that when they were like basically were the uh, Mercedes Works team from say the late 1990s till about what about uh, ten years or so, whatever it might have been, you know, sort of that that time frame. I mean, they had some great drivers. They had Mika Hakkinen, they had Kimi Raikkonen. I mean, and then Lewis started his career there as well. I mean, they they were a major major force in Formula One. But when I was a kid growing up, it was Honda and McLaren, and this is sort of like the mid to late 1980s, and some of these beautiful cars like the the MP4-4, the MP4-5 and 4-6, some of the most beautiful Formula One cars ever designed and built and raced. They're just absolutely gorgeous especially that MP44, which is sort of mid-80-ish, about 86, 87. Just to, if you're not familiar with that car, just 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 Google it or go onto YouTube and 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 search for some old footage or some of these historic uh, Formula One or historic Grand Prix where you see cars from that era racing together. They are a- absolutely fantastic. But they had Honda power. And uh, at that time, it was Honda, oh, pardon me, it was Williams versus McLaren. And they both had Honda power in them. And then eventually, uh, I, I, of course, there was all this politics in the, involved. Williams got dumped uh, by by Honda, more or less, and they they, they stuck with the uh, with the uh, McLaren. But they were absolutely dominant. So when when I heard several years ago that they were going to partner again in, in this new era of Formula One, I was really really excited, as I'm sure you know anybody that kind of grew up or that 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 was a Formula One fan during that era was was really expecting big things to happen and it was completely anything but so to kind of maybe bring this thought to a conclusion and I know I've kind of wandered all over the place here that that's a little bit why I I have some some mixed feelings towards this because the most recent partnership between the two wasn't great and then but that it changes a little bit because after they parted ways with McLaren, they uh, you know they, they went all in with Red Bull, and that's become such a dominant package. I mean, it's not just the Red Bull, it's not just the Honda engine; it's both of those pieces together. And and I can't help but think, you know, if if they had like a, a proper kind of like a works arrangement with someone, it could not, you know, it, it's really really tantalizing. But and we've kind of seen. And this this whole thing, especially when Honda announced they were leaving Formula One a couple of years ago, I still to this day can't really get my mind around that thing because every time I think about that, it's like, did they really ever officially leave? <laughs> because it's like, you know, they were leaving, but no, they're still doing this and that and everything. But anyhow, I think that if this does come to reality and there is like a, like this kind of works arrangement, I kind of get the feeling that 
if it's successful, it could be the new version or the modern iteration of the the, the Mercedes McLaren partnership that was so successful for what about a, a decade and a half or whatever it was. That's what I would hope it would be. But like I say, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical. I, I don't know what you're thinking about, uh, Mark. It's it's tantalizing. It's exciting, but 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 but, and I, I like the way you kind of provided a little bit of context to this conversation with some of the background. I think one of the things that's really important to remember is a lot of the challenges that Honda had when they first returned, because of course they had a full on works team until the two, end of 2008. They, they sold that team off to Ross Braun. He made certain commitments. They funded the project for another year. They stuck a Mercedes power unit in the back of that car in 2009 and they won a couple of titles. That was fantastic. But Honda was completely gone and Honda was out of the sport entirely when the discussions around the 2014 power unit started happening. So by the time they made the commitment to come back to the sport, other teams, other engine suppliers, like you mentioned, Renault, Ferrari, Mercedes, they'd already had years of time invested in developing that power unit. That's why Honda wasn't there in 2014. That's why they were there in 2015. But it was also pretty well established during that period that Honda did not want to come into the sport in 2015. They weren't ready. The engine wasn't where they needed it to be. And their desire was to come into the sport in 2016. But Ron Dennis had put the, and I I shouldn't necessarily blame him, but I will. Ron Dennis had put the Mercedes relationship because of course, in 2014, Mercedes were actually supplying McLaren with the power units. They put that relationship in such a horrendous spot because, of course, if you flash back to Spygate a number of years before, it was Mercedes that had paid for half of that fine. It was what fractured the team, and the Mercedes-McLaren works team broke apart as a byproduct of that. It probably never would have happened if that fallout hadn't occurred. But ultimately, there was a lot of there was a lot of things that were working to undermine this. And of course, again, we can complain all we want about the reliability of that Honda power unit, but the car chassis, the McLaren chassis that they were rocking in 2015, 2016, 2017, that was a hugely problematic chassis as well. There was just a, a lot of things surrounding Woking and the McLaren Technology Center that needed to be uprooted. And I think mm-hmm. you and I would probably agree that Zach Brown's done a really good job of gutting that organization and starting over. And I think they've got the chassis and they've got the commercial side of the business in terms of relationships with sponsors and developing and and uh, attracting top talent to drive these cars. They've done some really good things there. But I think the one thing that will perennially hold them back from being a championship contender is they will not win a championship if they're a customer team. It will not happen. Being a customer team, having to depend on somebody else to supply your power units puts you at a significant disadvantage from the rest of the grid. If there's an opportunity to partner with Honda and to be able to develop that car and that power unit in tandem... I think that's a really, really, really good thing. Now, it needs to be a partnership, right? Like that's what we've seen with AlphaTauri, Toro Rosso, and of course, Red Bull is the development of the Honda power unit over the last three or four years has been a true collaborative partnership. Whereas in the McLaren case, it was McLaren dictating to Honda what they needed out of the power unit. Um, And they didn't know what they needed because they were not a power unit manufacturer. So I think this could be a very, very, putting aside that dark spell, I think McLaren's in a very different place psychologically, financially, culturally, um, I think this could be a big boon for for McLaren. And I think it would be a great fit for Honda if they choose, they want to come back to Formula One. But if they do, they need to make that decision soon because like the race spoke to in their YouTube video today, they're running a skeleton staff at the F1 facilities. They're long for the ride in terms of learning about and contributing uh, feedback to the development of the 2026 engine unit specification. They've got nobody working on it. They, they're not, they don't have a power unit. They don't have an internal combustion engine on the bench. They're not doing anything. Um, so if they are going to make that commitment to come back, it's got to happen soon. Yeah. Actually, uh, Fernando Alonso, 2017 uh, McLaren Honda Fernando Alonso wants to check in from the Russian Grand Prix. He's got some thoughts. I try three times, please, Fernando. I try already, so try yourself. <laughs> that was that I think that was 2017 but that was that embarrassing moment when Fernando kind of came rolling around the the, the final corner onto the grid at Sochi and the the car the power unit completely failed on him and well we all know that uh, Fernando's not one to hold back what, uh, what what he really thinks and feels but joking aside yeah it, you know what you say that uh, it, it is interesting and and a wee bit concerning that if they are going to do this that they have like you say a skeleton 
skeleton crew crew like on hand so if they're going to do it they've they've got to make the choice quickly because it seems like 2026 is a long way away but in terms of developing and, and and building and scaling this thing up that is not a lot of time i mean i i can imagine it at audi hq that it's just all hands on deck at the moment and and focusing on this project to get their car ready their initial uh, car and team ready for 2026 Daily. Daily. three that, years right that's a great point we know that red bull red bull ford powertrains have 500 people on staff working on that power unit we know that in Germany, Audi has at least 300 people working on that power unit. Mm-hmm. Honda needs to make up their mind quickly or they'll be at a significant competitive disadvantage because it feels, you're absolutely right, it feels like it's a long time away, but this championship is going to fly by, 24 will fly by, then we're into 25, and then we're talking about weeks and months until the 2026 championship. So yeah, they've got to make a decision pretty quickly. Well, I mean, it's not like they can just uh, flick a switch and start doing it tomorrow. I mean, they're going to have to start recruiting and and getting the people in there. I mean, they need the human resources to get this uh, this project up and running. So every day that they they, they wait making a, de- a decision is a day lost. And, you know, I mean, three years seems like a long time, but it ain't really. Anyhow, let's uh, move on to the next uh, bit of news. And what was that one? Oh, I just want to talk uh, about this one uh, really quickly. So this is a chart that uh, you picked up from uh, at F1 underscore charts on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So like you said, uh, we know Mercedes is going to have Mercedes power in 26. McLaren is a question mark. Same as Aston Martin and Williams. Ferrari is obviously going to have uh, their own power and Sauber obviously will morph into Audi. Haas, like you said a little earlier, a a question mark. I mean, sometimes I have a question mark myself whether or not Haas will even be around in 2026. Red Bull obviously will be Red Bull powertrain slash Honda and Alpine will be Alpine or Renault if they want to call it. And of course, the uh, yet to be determined team that may or may not have Honda power. Okay, so the next one here is that FIA President Mohammed Ben Suleim has made the announcement that or they just decided that he's going to step back from, <clears throat> excuse me, day-to-day Formula One operations, which we, we've talked about at length, not just recently, but for a, a pretty long haul here. I mean, he's made some pretty, you know, pretty big comments and kind of put his, you know, put his hand into a hornet's nest a, a couple of times, but he should be where he is. And that's in the, in the background because as regulator, they should just uh, be doing what they need to do involved with safety and all the things that a governing body should be. And I've, I've thought at, at many times that uh, a lot of the things that he's had to said were, you know, at, at best, ill-advised and at worst probably you know <laughs> well yeah just just not smart at all so to, to hear that he's decided to step back is uh, is a good idea but yeah i couldn't help but think when was that uh, just a couple of what was it before the holiday when that piece came out or somebody had dug up some you know really old comments some really unpleasant misogynistic things that uh, he said i i couldn't help but feel like somebody had paid somebody to like Go dig up some dirt on this guy and and get somebody it out was, there. Somebody been sitting on that for a while, man. I think somebody so. had been sitting on that for a yeah, while. Yeah, but you know, not not that I have anything personally against uh, Mohammed Ben Suleim, but uh, I, I think that when it comes to a regulator and especially like the, the the head of the FIA, it was like as my dad always said to us, you know, you're better seen and not heard because uh, I guess we were very noisy and boisterous children, but not that <laughs> that uh, that's a, a good comparison. But you you know what I mean. I think the FIA and its president is best uh, th- th- where they should be is operating quietly in the in the background unless there's a major issue that needs to be out there in, in the public and a lot of the stuff that he's been talking about for me and I think for for most of us didn't fall into that 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 urgent must be addressed because of reasons for safety or whatever it might be one of our listeners, Marshall, in the live chat just noted as well as well that the uh, the dirt that was dug up on Ben Salam is certainly not as bad as the, what they had found <laughs> on Max Mosley. If you if you can stomach it, I certainly recommend you go down that Google search route, but search Mac Mo- Max Mosley and scandal, and you'll probably be taken aback by what was uh, what was almost borderline acceptable at one point in the fact that he was able to retain his career after that. But I yep. think the FIA PR machine was in full force this week and i'm reading an fia statement here from skysports.com but the statement says 
The president's manifesto clearly set out that this plan, before he was elected, it pledged the appointment of an FIA CEO to provide an integrated and aligned operation, as well as to introduce a revised governance framework under a leadership team focused on transparency, democracy, and growth. These goals, as well as the announcement of the new structure of the single-seater department, have been planned since the beginning of this presidency. The FIA president has a wide remit that covers the breadth of global motorsport and mobility, and now that the structural reorganization in Formula One is complete, this is the natural next step. So the the, the FIA PR spin machine is certainly functioning uh, in full effect here. That said, I don't doubt, and I, I know for a fact, that a lot of these operational, organizational, structural changes. Uh, the fact that they brought in an individual, Nicholas, who's going to be effectively leading the single car division of the FIA. We've spoken about him a few times in the past. Like That was known to be happening. Um, it's, it's, it's timely. And I just... I think a lot of the errors, a lot of the inappropriate statements, and and I think a lot of what we've encountered over the last 12 months with Ben Salam has been unforced errors. The fact that you challenge publicly the value of the Formula One organization mm-hmm. um, serves no one's serves the well-being of nobody. Uh, implementing, as we'll get to in a couple of minutes, implementing a, a potential crackdown on drivers wishing to express themselves serves no one. It doesn't serve the sport, as especially given the fact that for two years, the We Races One campaign dominated the, the grid and, and the paddock in Formula One. And it was a big part of Formula One during the COVID era. Uh, so much of, of what's occurred and what's come out of Mr. Ben Salam's mouth over the course of the last couple of years has just been completely unnecessary. And I think if this was the intention all along, this is great. Um, because like you said, I see the FIA as a regulator, and I want them to regulate the sport. Um, but I also don't want to hear about them because typically and too often when we have heard about F1 in the last couple of years, it's because of these unnecessary gaffes. So either things that Mohammed Ben Salem are saying that upset the commercial rights holder, or the fact that there's a tractor on the track in Japan, or the fact that we had to deal with the fallout of Abu Dhabi for months and months and months. The fact that the FIA leaked the 2023 or released the 2023 calendar without expressing or informing Formula One that they were going to do it. The fact that they resisted a six race sprint um, schedule for 2022, like all of these different things, like if, if there are disputes between the commercial rights and the regulator, they need to be having those conversations behind closed doors. Like they should never become public facing. And furthermore, all of these governance issues, these safety issues simply can't happen. This is a this is a very 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 rich organization that benefits tremendously from the well-being of Formula 1. They just need to do a better job. And I'm not talking about the individual marshals that are taking up their posts at the track all over the world and in grassroots motorsports and in lower level single seaters. Like I think all of the people that are contributing and volunteering their time are doing an exceptional job. I think it's the governance from the highest level where there's an opportunity. So um, in terms of what's happening, whether this was intended all or not all along or not, and and I think the FIA PR machine will tell you that this was always the plan. Um, and maybe it was. I just think it's it's timely because I think that relationship between the commercial rights group and the FIA was untenable and it was reaching a breaking point. And I think in a lot of ways this may save or preserve Ben Salam's position as the head of the FIA. And again, let's be clear, the commercial rights group and the teams aren't the ones that vote for him. They don't hire him. It's the individual, it's the individual motorsports bodies all over the world that that vote him into that position. But again, when F1 is your bread and butter as an organization, you can't you can't be at odds with the commercial rights group indefinitely. Yeah, e- exactly. And I don't have anything uh, further to add to that than let, let's just hope <laughs> this is the last of uh, these sort of stories that, uh, that 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 pop out. And I certainly have uh, had, uh, had, had enough talking about uh, things like that. Anyways, uh, let's uh, take a quick break. And when we come back on the other side, hopefully another story that we can uh, wrap up uh, once and for all is the whole uh, political statement ban on drivers and things like that. Uh, so we'll talk about that in a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. 
superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, welcome back to the show. And Hammy Moody, moving right along, Formula One CEO Stefano Domenicali said that the sport will, quote, never put a gag on anyone, end quote. And this has uh, to do with the controversial FIA crackdown or clampdown or whatever you want to call it on drivers uh, speaking out on, well, any, anything um, that they really feel is important to them, be it political or otherwise. And uh, anyways, um, Domenicali had to say the following, quote, F1 will never put a gag on anyone. Everyone wants to talk. So to have the platform to say what they want uh, in the right way, the, the better it is. We have a huge opportunity because of the position of our sport, which is more and more global, multicultural and multi-valued. We are talking about 20 drivers, 10 teams and many sponsors. They have different ideas, different views. I cannot say one is right, one is wrong, but it is right if needed to give them a platform to discuss their opinions in an open way. We will not change that approach as a sport. That should be the line of our sport to give everyone the chance to speak in the right way, not with aggressive tones or to offend, but with respect, end quote. Hammy, what do you have to make of this one? I just, I, I got to say, man, I got to eat some cheese. Is that the expression? Eat as, some as crow. I was saying it, is it eat, eat some crow, crow or some swallow cheese. some crow? Yeah, eat some cheese. I, I don't. I couldn't have been more off the mark in January when we first talked about the story because I was convinced, I was convinced that this was a mandate that was coming down from the commercial rights group and the team and, and <laughs> sorry, the teams. And there was obviously a lot of silence at the time from the drivers and from the teams, but obviously that was because they were all on winter vacation or it was because they weren't, I don't know, executing media responsibilities. But as the drivers and the teams and the team principals and, and the Formula One executives have started being placed in front of the microphones again as we get into these car launches and into preseason testing, these questions are coming up from the media. And it's now abundantly clear that this was, again, a, a mandate that was imposed by the FIA on the sport without necessarily any consultation from the drivers um, or from the commercial rights group. And I feel really good that every driver, every team executive, and now Stefano Domenicali um, have basically shared the same sentiment that freedom of speech and being able to express themselves is is important, that the platform that these drivers have is very, very important. And like I said, it was only it was only a year ago that we were still embracing, as we should have been, uh, the We Race as One campaign, which encouraged drivers to come forward with um, social justice and social causes, environmental causes that were close and important to them. So again, I think this is another gaffe from the FIA. Um, and I don't know who within the FIA mandated this, and I don't know how it could have happened without consultation from the commercial rights groups and the teams, because really this is about applying this policy to to the drivers on the teams. Um, there's also a quote here from Logan Sargent and Alex Albon, and we don't have to go into those details too much, uh, but they're, they're also pleading for clarification from the FIA about what this means. Um, but like we said last week, you know, Christian Horner's chimed in, Helmut Marko has chimed in, Max Verstappen, Valtteri Bottas, everyone seems to be speaking the same, which is they don't want to be gagged. The Formula One commercial rights group doesn't want to gag them, and they're all seeking clarification from the FAA on what this means and and how they're going to how they're going to govern this regulation that uh, flies in the face of what the sport was doing for two years through the COVID period. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm kind of like ready to walk away from this one. I mean, after all the different uh, stories that we've talked about, the ones that just uh, keep uh, popping up, this one is another one that just kind of kind of needs to let, let's just figure it out what it is and tell them what the you know what they they can or they cannot do. But uh, it's just uh, it's been uh, too much. So let's move on, Hammy. Let's uh, let's talk about um, car reveals. New cars, or baby. 
livery reveals. So we've seen the, the the well, we've seen a couple board. We've seen the Alpha. We've seen the the Williams, and the Williams is. Uh, I like it. It's still like a bit of a, I, I guess, a, an evolution of the livery that they rocked uh, last year. The um, the uh, the Alpha Romeo is, I wouldn't say a complete pole shift, but it's very different from last year. It still has like that dark red on it, but the white that's been on the car the last couple of years has now been replaced by the black. So they're two nice looking cars, but so you're, you're dying to jump in. So go yeah, yeah, yeah. before I, so I'll I'm stop rambling. I'm excited to talk about the Alfa Romeo, but <laughs> okay. I feel like we have to we have to eat our vegetables first. Before we get to the dessert, we've got to eat our vegetables. And in this case, is this the broccoli? Williams livery reveal. Yeah. Are you comparing actually, Williams to broccoli? That is bold. I don't so mind keep going. broccoli. Um, and I also don't mind Brussels sprouts. So it's, it's some sort of vegetable Same. I don't like. Same. Raw onion. Raw, I'm eating my raw onion if, that, if people eat that. But the car, like you said, looks remarkably similar to the prior year. What we saw was a livery reveal. It's not the actual car. It's a show car. A couple of notable takeaways is an awful lot of the sponsors that have been on the car the last three years are gone. So Safina's gone, RBC's gone, et cetera, because that was money that was tied into the fact that that a Canadian boy um, was uh, Nicholas Latifi was in that car. So they're gone. Um, replacing them is a, a more prominent representation of Duracell. And at a couple of races last year, I didn't know this. So I'm not going to pretend I did. But at a couple of uh, races last year, the airbox uh, above the halo behind the driver had been made up to look like a Duracell battery. It looks like that'll be a permanent visual treatment this year. And of course, like we talked about last week, Gulf Oil International now has a fairly prominent placement for their logo. But a couple of things that were revealed this week as people started sniffing through some of the 2022 Williams financial documentation is it looks like they only took in about 16 million pounds last year from sponsorship. And of course, the balance of that came from the Latifi connections. It's also reported that the Gulf Oil logo, because some people were shocked that Gulf was divorcing itself of, of McLaren. By all accounts, McLaren wasn't particularly upset about that and didn't necessarily beg them to stay. But the Gulf Oil logo placement on the car is only going to fetch them $4 million a year. So while we talk about things like McLaren having to beat sponsors away with a stick. And there was that story that dropped a couple of days ago about the fact that, hey, Red Bull's picked up 23 sponsors in the last three years, and they've had to turn down more. They've had to turn down more sponsors than they've accepted just because they don't have enough placement on the car. There's certainly still teams on the grid that are struggling for sponsors. Um, in terms of delivery, it's the same as last year. I don't think it's a particularly thoughtful, well-engineered design. It's it's a gradient in a series of different dark and, and light blues. It is what it is. And ultimately, I think come the first race of the season, we won't see much of it because I don't expect them to be competitive this year. It's nice to see the Gulf Oil livery on there. The president and CEO of Gulf Oil or International was asked a couple of days ago as well about whether he would be open to a more prominent um, placement of his company's branding on the car maybe something similar to the full-on Gulf livery that we saw in the McLaren at Monaco a couple of years ago. And he said, certainly that is something that they would be open to, uh, but they haven't had those conversations with Williams yet. So that's my take on the Williams car. I don't think we really need to spend a lot more time on it. Um, other than the fact that just as a quick note, because a couple of our listeners did ask this, um, as it was in 2022, Williams this year will continue to purchase the transmission and hydraulics from Mercedes. So there was a long period where Williams would consistently build its own gearbox, um, despite the fact that they were an engine unit customer. That's changed. So transmission hydraulics are from Mercedes as well as the power unit. They're going to rock a rear suspension that will be pull rod style. Um, and there'll be a couple of other, I would say, packaging changes on the kind of the cooling system um, to accommodate some changes that are being sent to them from the Brackley squad at Mercedes. But that said, Mark, I don't know if you've got any comments or thoughts about about the Williams, but I'm dying to get to the Alfa Romeo. Yeah, not 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 too much. I mean, like like yourself, I'm not really too crazy about like this gradient livery. I, I think it's kind of cool. Some of the uh, like the Gulf Oil logo on you know the where it appears on a couple places on the, uh, the the car, and like the Duracell logo or you know sort of battery thing on the top of the airbox. That's kind of cool, but the rest of it for me is kind of meh. Anyhow, the the I was going to say the Audi, <laughs> the Alpha. <laughs> Here I am. It's you funny, know, like I was, yeah. Because in the chat, Marshall saying Marshall. Like, he's saying the Alpha Romeo looks suspiciously like an Audi, and then yeah. you refer to we're, man. We're both thinking of the same lines, Marshall. We're thinking the same thing, totally. brother. 
Yeah, go ahead. So, so run with it, Mark. I was hoping you would, but I will happily dive <laughs> okay. in. So like you said, like visually, if you if you take a quick glance at the 2023 car, and the other thing that was really interesting about this was Alfa Romeo was the first team so far to reveal their car. This isn't a show car. It's not a dummy car. It's not a livery on their 2022 car. It is their 2023 car. And of course, it'll be drastically different by the time we get to Bahrain and we get through a couple of days of um, kind of scrubbing the car around the track during preseason testing. But I think the biggest change for me is, like you said, it still has that beautiful, rich red, but where the contrasting color for most of Alfa Romeo's partnership with Sauber has been white, it's black. And I think it looks absolutely brilliant. I'm not I'm not super stoked on the fact that there's stake logos all over the car because I'm not a big fan of gambling companies getting involved with professional sports. I know it's kind of the progressive thing to do and it's happening everywhere globally now. But I think this car looks absolutely exceptional. Um, I think some of the takeaways um, in terms of the car design changes, and I'm probably not going to try to run through this, is there's significant changes to the the way that the side pods taper towards the back of the car. The floor is significantly different. Um, and if you look at the body shape uh, at the back under the rear wing as it tapers towards the exhaust, it's been significantly reworked. And I think that's pretty consistent with what the Alfa Romeo Sauber group had said, that a lot of the work happened at the back of the car and along the floors. If you look at the front, it's not a lot different. It's also rumored that they've actually extended the wheelbase of the car. So the wheelbase is potentially a little bit longer than it was last year, but the car looks fantastic. And of course, 2023 is Alpha's last year of partnership, the last year that they're signing up to be the title sponsor. Of, I guess it's they're not really the title sponsor. Stake, I guess, is the title sponsor. But Alpha Romeo's partnership with Sauber comes to an end at the end of this year. So if this is the if this is the last time, the last of Alpha Romeo that we're going to see on the Formula One grid, uh, this is a great looking car from the bring out to 23 Grand Prix this year. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it looks fantastic with that uh, that deep dark red and that black, that sort of semi gloss. Is I guess it's a, I guess it's more of a a matte rather than 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 a glossy black. But it it looks great. But I'm, I was just uh, thinking as you were talking, Mark. Like, what are they going to call the team in the interim for twenty four and twenty five yeah, before it comes? Dude, is is I it going to revert back to Sauber? Is it going to be something else? Is it going to be generic F one team or some so sort every of time? I think about that. I'm like, well, if Audi is going to effectively own the team by 2024, why would they not just call it Audi? But then, of course, it's going to have a Ferrari power unit in it for 2023 mm, and 2024 right. well, 24 and 25. So does Audi really want to put their name on a car that's being powered by a Ferrari power unit? But I, I think, like you said, maybe it reverts back to the Sauber branding. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm very, very curious to know because it would be very odd. And we've seen, of course, we've seen a BMW Sauber Ferrari before. Um, yeah. So it wouldn't be completely, of course, that was more circumstance and, and timing than anything. I just, I don't know that Audi would willingly, knowingly, wantingly put their put their stickers on a car that's powered by but then again they could always rebadge the power of the Ferrari power unit too right it could get some generic badging so it's not quite as obvious but uh, yeah it'll be really interesting to see and I don't know the answer to that yeah well I mean we we've seen it uh, fairly recently even with uh, with Red Bull because a couple of years ago they rebadged that um like the the the, the Renault power unit to a tag Hoyer, tag you know yep. yeah yeah so it, it's not unheard of but I mean to people who know I mean we would know it's still a Ferrari power unit in the in, in the back of that car but uh, be interesting to see what uh, what they decide to do but it it is a very very nice uh, looking car I just wonder what uh, what it's going to be like when they um, you know get this car on the track i mean because they, they they sort of kind of not really weren't all that competitive but they were sort of kind of at times but not really so i'm kind of expecting more of the same that you know sort of middle of the pack kind of team that might have a couple of brilliant moments here and there throughout uh, the season i was also wondering if they're going to come up with some sort of generic kind of name because they've done that by not having a real team principal this year that I can remember because we, we talked about it last week. It's kind of like Formula One team representative. I don't know. Maybe they'll do something similar with the, uh, the, the, the team name moving forward until they can throw those Audi badges on there and 
say for 100% certainty this is an Audi and 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 nothing nothing but but anyhow nice uh, nice looking car so what do we want to talk about now you you did a nice uh, summary of what uh, what what some of the changes are but i have to admit when when i saw the pictures of this car I actually felt excited because with all the other reveals that we've seen, they've all been livery reveals. So I'm just kind of like, okay, well, that that's great. But I just feel like I'm looking at a at a poster, right? I, but to, to see, and like you so correctly and rightly pointed out, this car is still going to evolve even in the, the couple of weeks before the, the season and before things get really serious here. But to see an actual 2023 formula one car instead of just uh, a mock-up uh, of some of these other ones that we've seen in the other reveals actually got me really excited i don't know about you but uh, certainly i was i was pretty pumped to see that it is a question that people ask quite often is why do teams present a show car like this is this the expectation historically has been that this is when the team rolls out their new car their new contender their new wannabe champion and Unfortunately, what we've seen the last couple of years is that the paradigm has shifted a little bit and really all we get to see are the show cars. So I think more than anything, the car reveals now are really about satisfying the needs and the wants of the sponsors, right? That if you're going to sign care of somebody- those who take care yeah, of you. Totally. Like if I'm yep. Williams and I, I'm going to take $4 million from Gulf Oil International this year, like they want the glitz and glamour of having that car wheel or that car wheeled out in front of a big global audience and they pull off the blanket and and that's that logo right in front of it. I think the other reason why teams may not want to show off their their contenders or one, they may just not be ready, right? Like these teams work with the exception of the two week shutdown in December for the winter break. These teams are working around the clock through January to get the car ready. And quite frankly, mm-hmm. the cars just may not be ready for public consumption. And then the other consideration too is you could, if, you're, if your competitors aren't doing it, you could put yourself at a competitive disadvantage by showing your car early because somebody could look at what you've done, put it into the sim, put it into their modeling software and recognize that, hey, that thing that this other team has done that we didn't think about, that's pretty cool. And we should do our best to get that ready for the first or second Grand Prix of the season. So typically the teams want to keep their their cards close to their chest as as long as possible. Um, so I think it was a pretty, I don't want to say brave because I think the expectation is we should be seeing the cars, but uh, it was obviously pretty um, bold of Alfa Romeo to reveal their actual car um, and kudos to them for doing it. Cause like you said, I was very excited seeing this car. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you say, I mean, teams have uh, gone through all sorts of lengths in the past to hide uh, their their cars, even in plain sight, because they take them out for testing and they throw like those zebra paint jobs on them because those jagged irregular lines of these sort of like zebra stripes, uh, they really take away some of the definition of the the car because like when it gets photographed it loses uh, some of the depth on it so for anybody that's trying to extrapolate and pull information out of a car that uh, for that's been rolled out by one of their competitors if they they have like this this funny sort of zebra type uh, paint job on it they just uh, they're they're less likely to to be able to uh, to do it but i was just thinking mark we're we're going to pioneer something here on the podcast so so next week we're going to do an audio livery reveal so we're, we're not actually going to have a real podcast we're just going to we got to figure <laughs> out what an audio livery reveal is but it's going to be groundbreaking and it's going to be great and it's going to be something that happened here first but what am i talking about uh, i'm just uh, getting silly here why don't we take a quick break because we actually have some serious things to talk about including williams driver logan Sargent, who said that even just a year or so ago he thought that his uh, formula one dream was 100 percent dead so we'll talk about that in a moment so don't go away we'll be right back Okay, welcome back. And it is time to talk about Williams. Sorry, I was going to trip up there. I tried to say two words at the same time. Williams rookie driver Logan Sargent, the American, said two years ago uh, he thought that his Formula One dream was 100% dead. And here he is, you know, 20 years, you know, he's 22 now. So two years ago, when he was 20, he thought that. Formula One was, wasn't was going to be uh, a thing. Anyways, he told uh, media in um, 
in attendance for William's launch of the FW45 livery. He said, quote, I was 100% sure it was dead at that point, to be honest. At that point, I just thought, okay, it's going to be heading upwards uh, towards the LMP or IndyCar route, which at the time I was content with. I was. It was just my reality at the time. That's where I felt like there was only two places I could still turn to. The F3 seat was just simply uh, passed uh, to pass some time and stay in a car to help move a team forward, a different position for myself. The LMP2 races, GT race, was just to get a bit of fun and get a bit of a experience in endurance and sports car racing. To be honest, I feel like it. Uh, in the end, it was all extremely beneficial and helped me massively, so I'm glad I did it all. End quote. That's uh, kind of an interesting, uh, you know, ad- admission from Logan Sargent. I mean, he's only 22, right? And and he's just starting his Formula One career now. But that really kind of gives, I think, a very interesting perspective that somebody even at the you know the the ancient advanced age of 20 in motorsports thought even just two years ago that. Formula One wasn't going to happen for him. And let, let, let's face it, I mean, he'd probably been racing for most of his, his life at that point through his teens and through his youth and things like that in different levels. So when I read that quote, I was quite quite astounded thinking that, you know, after all that that he's done since, you know, he's three, four, five years old or whenever he got into motorsports, that it just wasn't going to happen for him then and that he'd have to look uh, look elsewhere. But, you know, it's uh, it's great to see him in Formula One. It'll be interesting to see what he can do. Of course, he is going to have an additional challenge of not having, you know, what we rightfully so or rightfully expect uh, won't be one of the uh, most competitive cars on the grid. But still, I mean, we saw George Russell do some things in the Williams over the past couple of years that, you know, that he probably shouldn't have. I mean, you know, granted he wasn't winning races, but, you know, we should still see one way or the other what sort of talent Logan Sargent has as a racing driver. Okay, moving along. So predictions are from Logan Sargent again that Formula One will soon overtake and surpass NASCAR as America's favorite motorsport. Anyways, uh, Logan had to say, quote, it's almost as big as NASCAR and IndyCar, if not bigger. It's hard to say without seeing the numbers, but it seems like it's pretty popular and that's a positive. Obviously, there's a lot of diehard IndyCar NASCAR fans who don't always like it. But I think with the way that the sport is going in America, it will, if it is not already, the biggest here shortly. End quote. What do you think? Do you think Logan's onto something? It's a, it's a something? stretch, man. We, we sit so? here and we do an America adjacent Formula One podcast and we love the sport. And I think you and I have both been incredibly thrilled with the rise in popularity. I mean, you and I a few years ago talked about whether we might be in a position where the US has no races again. And now we're in a position where this year there's going to be three American races on the calendar. But to 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 make an argument that F1 could outgrow NASCAR is is a stretch, not an impossibility, but it's a stretch. The the grassroots and the infrastructure and the cultural awareness of, of NASCAR, especially in some parts of the US, is so deep. And like if you look at the 2023 NASCAR calendar, they have 26 races. And again, they're not drawing 400,000 people uh, like, of course, Austin does for the Formula One Grand Prix, but you have 26 races on the calendar. And then you have two months uh, of, of playoffs. You have 30 NASCAR Cup Series races every single year. And we're talking about Formula One's going to be bigger with three domestic races. Like I, again, that would be awesome. I think what we will probably see is Formula One will continue to grow, and maybe we get to a point where the TV ratings for certain Formula One races are comparable or greater than NASCAR races. Like the North American races should be drawing four million people in the U.S. Like eight hundred k a million, one point one million is unacceptable for a domestic race. But I think we'll get to a place where they'll compete with NASCAR. But I, I would argue it's a stretch. I think one of the kind of the other beneficiaries of this boom in open wheel racing is certainly going to be IndyCar. IndyCar is not going to compete with Formula One. It's certainly not going to compete with NASCAR globally. Uh, But I think IndyCar will certainly um, continue to benefit from the windfall of popularity that has uh, befallen Formula One. But I think it's a bit of a stretch to say that, hey, F1 with three races in the US is going to overtake NASCAR, which positions itself as you know what this mega series with 26 regular season races and then two months of playoffs i think is a a bit of a stretch 
Yeah, yeah, no kidding. I mean, I mean, there there is no doubt that the that the sport is growing, but like you say, I mean, the proof that it's is really made that huge impact and is really because you know entering into that reality will be like you say will be the tv numbers and also like like i've joked about before that i'll know that this is like seriously a big big thing in north america if i go down to the store and there's a cardboard life-size cutout of lewis hamilton or charles leclerc trying to convince me to buy a six-pack of miller light or a bag of m&ms or or whatever it might be right then then i'll be fully convinced that yeah this 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 is a big 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 thing here i mean certainly is very much more that's terrible grammar certainly formula one is a lot more popular now than it even was just a couple of years ago not just in uh, in north america but globally uh, and there certainly is a lot more space to grow in this uh, this uh, region of the world but let's see where it goes uh, from from here certainly a long way to go Okay, but uh, just uh, talking about that, so apparently Vegas has approved a plan to shut down the strip for Formula One racing until 2032. Hammy, this is big news. This, uh, This Las Vegas thing is a thing before it's even become a thing for the first time. This race is going to be huge. I think maybe the only unfortunate thing about it is as the pinnacle of F1 in America, and it will certainly be the most spectacular race. It's going to be raced on a Saturday night. I think one of the only unfortunate things is this event in terms of spectators will absolutely be engineered to cater to sponsors and and hospitality. That this isn't a race I think that most folks are going to be able to buy tickets to go and, and watch. I think Again, when you've got races in Montreal and Miami and Austin and Mexico City, maybe maybe you don't need to have 300,000 people sitting in grandstands over the course of three days for this event. Uh, but just be aware that I think it's going to be spectacular on TV. I think the long straights will make for some reasonably good racing because of the slipstreams. And it looks like the city is as committed to F1 as F1 is committed to the city. And obviously, F1 is investing hundreds of millions of dollars to build 12-month-a-year, uh, I would say, facilities and, and paddock areas and garages and, and entertainment functions to to make sure that F1 has a presence in the city 12 months of the year, not just in November when they come for the sole night race of the uh, American calendar. Yeah, it, it's exciting. I, I'm really looking forward to this uh, Vegas race. Like, uh, I, I know it's still like, what, 10 and a half months away <laughs> before we see the racing of the strip, but it is going to be a, a spectacle. It's going to be fantastic. And uh, I'm excited to see that it's, uh, you know, at least the plans are in place, at least from a civic level to keep it there for for a long, long time. Okay, a couple more things uh, before we wrap it up. Uh, the next one, this is an interesting one. This is an article by Mike Seymour over at FormulaOne.com. So it's called uh, Greatest Hits, Ford's Best Moments in F1 as they get set for a comeback with Red Bull. So there's uh, a whole bunch of uh, really great uh, historic things. Uh, so the first one is Ford Cosworth DFE kicks off a period of F1 domination. So this is going all the way back to 1967 with uh, Jim Clark racing a Lotus 49 at the uh, the Dutch Grand Prix, talking about Graham Hill uh, being powered to a pole position by over half a, a second. And then uh, <laughs> his teammate Jim Clark at Lotus won the race by over half a minute. Then uh, Hill and Lotus did uh, the title double with uh, the the Cosworth DFE in 1968. McLaren winning their first win at the uh, 1968 Belgian Grand Prix. And then uh, Schumacher's first world championship way back in the early 1990s was also the last time that Ford won a world uh, championship. So that's uh, going uh, back a long, long way. And then they uh, also powered uh, Stuart Grand Prix, which we talked about uh, last week, to a famous win, which is what the article says, and a podium double. So looking on (laughs) on this picture here, there's a very young-looking, well, youngish-looking Johnny Herbert, a somewhat younger-looking Jackie Stewart, and an also somewhat young-looking Rubens Barrichello on the podium at the Nürburgring way back in 1999, which would also have been the last year before Stewart was then rebadged as a Jaguar. And then, of course, they went on to race for a couple of years before they sold the team and then it became a Red Bull. So it's kind of interesting how it's kind of sort of come full circle all the way again. 
And now finally to wrap it up, Mark, and this has kind of uh, come all the way, almost completely full circle because we've been talking about power units and engine suppliers. We were talking about Honda and McLaren possibly entering into some sort of works agreement. But the uh, the next generation of uh, hybrid engines and a move to do so has been, uh, well, it's too late for BMW now because they've been way too slow in trying to introduce their next generation of power unit regulations, uh, or at least according from, to, uh, to to Red Bull, or sorry, to a BMW, pardon me, to really try and uh, you know attract them into the sport. And this is uh, according to their, their motorsport uh, boss, Andreas Ros. And um, so what with the new uh, rules coming into force for 2026, you know, it doesn't leave a lot of time. So, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, Rose, who's the, the 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 head of BMW M Motorsport, Todd told SpeedCafe.com, "Quote: When we're honest, Formula One goes hybrid in 2026. They are at the moment already, but with a hybrid system which has no relevance at all." And so in 2026, they go to a hybrid system, which you already see in cars. But this happens in 2026. We do so in the IMSA championship already and with the WEC next year on with the hybrid system, which has road relevance. So this is for us already basically three years earlier. And this is why at the moment, perfectly fitting to us, as I said, also to our road cars. And this uh, why for us, to be honest, Formula One, the change is too late to go in this direction. It is a similar story with the sustainable fuel, which is already in use in sports car racing, but will only be introduced to Formula One for 2026. Uh, it is not a topic for us at all. There's nothing really at the moment where we would look into Formula One, end quote. So obviously, uh, BMW not interested to get involved. But, you know, th- this is an interesting one, right, Mark? We- we've seen BMW in the sport and, yeah, it, do we want to say that... And I want to be careful how I say this, but I I don't always really feel like they, they I guess the, the best way as I can put it, they, they certainly didn't reach the potential we all felt that they could contribute to Formula One. I think that's probably the, the, the most political, the least offensive way to put it. I don't know. Do you want to add anything to that? Because we, we saw them as a manufacturer, as an engine supplier, and it just didn't didn't really manifest and i guess what a, a lot of people were hoping hoping to see so i'm getting grins that means you're, you're done for the night <laughs> right no oh i'm, I'm horrible i'm horrible <laughs> I, I i muscled this one out i i i soldiered through we're gonna clock in tonight at a little over an hour so i apologize shows a little bit shorter than normal and probably not as long-winded as you're used to but uh i'm struggling to keep from coughing every 30 seconds but uh, i think we still delivered a good show right I think so. I, I mean, I, I love how these were all kind of like quick, snappy stories, and that seems like very appropriate uh, for for this time of year. And you know, like like the whole, like I was saying earlier, I, I'm kind of really done with these conversations with uh, Mohammed Ben Suleim and the whole crackdown on on drivers making statements. I'm I'm just kind of hoping we can kind of move past those because it really feels like it, it's taken up a lot of space on the podcast over the last uh, several months. And what with the, you know all these important dates coming up like dts dropping and your moto gp 101 show coming up next week and winter testing and, and and you know some car reveals and more livery reveals it just seems like there's so much more exciting things to talk about than <laughs> you know th- th- things like the the, the regulator you know, being a little bit too vocal on things they should be vocal totally about agree. so there's yeah, gonna be I, lots I, I, of great stuff to, so yeah thank you for bearing yeah. with us the last couple of months as we've probably drilled into those topics to to no end but uh, I promise you as we get into winter testing and some of the cool stuff that we've got lined up like you said off this top we're going to do a preview predictions drive to survive episode with Seth and then the three of us all three of us you me and Seth will sit down to kind of do a recap or a, a review are of we what doing it was a watch all party that. with Seth or do we have to watch it on our own I mean come I on. think we got to watch it on our own man he's three <laughs> hours ahead of us he's in a totally different time zone uh, and of he's going to be got- calling in from the future whoa that's cool dude I also that's forgot. a bad joke, joke. Uh, this bad is joke. this is the last chance that listeners will have really to enter the Rich Energy book contest. So oh, right. we are going to draw those winners next weekend because I'm going to be sitting down with Alanis and with Elizabeth on the 17th to record the show that we're going to drop on the 19th. So we're going to get into the details and the story behind the story, which is, of course, the beautiful, well-executed Rich Energy book. 
Um, but yeah, lots going on. And of course, on Saturday, I think I'm sitting down with Ed and Maddie to record MotoGP 101. Boy, we've got a lot of stuff coming. So hopefully we've now moved beyond Ben Salem stories and stories <laughs> about the FIA cracking down on, on drivers, talking about issues that are important to them. And hopefully we'll get clarification from there and hopefully there won't be any change. But you know that the exciting thing is it's happening, right? I remember we, we we were talking a couple of weeks ago. You're like, okay, prepare yourself. February is going to be a busy month, and it, it's happening. All these cool things. Really looking forward to some of the stuff that uh, that you've got planned as uh, special episodes coming up. Looking forward to all the cool things like like DTS. It's kind of like the like the like that that's pre first Grand Prix of the season, like real you know, that's that thing that you really need to get really juiced up and really excited for the season ahead. So really looking forward for that to come. And then I, I know come Sunday night after the, the, the next season drops and we do that reaction show with Seth, I'll be just like, Oh man, that was, that was a long weekend to grind all the way through, but ultimately it was so much fun and so rewarding, but I'm, I'm very interested to, to see how they're going to kind of twist or not twist, but how they're going to focus uh, some of the, you know, the stories because at, at times it wasn't very, very exciting last year. But they've done an a, extremely good job over the past uh, four seasons to to really focus in and and there there has been some criticism that they they tend to over dramatize. But you you know, for one thing that, uh, that they'll. I know one thing for sure that uh, they'll probably do is I'm sure they'll focus on, um, you know, Joe Guan Yu's accident at, uh, at Silverstone because that was a big one. Right. And then all the other little subplots and things that went on throughout the season. So be fun to watch. Uh, anyways. Well, you know, Mark, we hit officially one hour, you know, a little bit shorter than usual, like you say. So we're not going to drag it on any longer time to wrap it up here. Thank you all once again. Thank you to everybody in the live chat on uh, on YouTube tonight. Appreciate you all spending some time with us as we ramble on here towards the, the weekend. But the good thing is now we're one week or one, sorry, one hour closer to the official start of weekend. So let's keep counting that down. It's almost here, guys. And until next week, if you want to get in touch, send us a tweet at ScooterF1Pod or send us an email, ScooterF1Pod at gmail.com. That's it. That's a wrap. Have a great weekend, guys. And we'll talk to you again really, really soon. Bye for now.